Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would do more than we can ask or imagine among us this morning. We pray that you would take your word and that you would cause it both to reshape our thoughts about who we are and how we should speak and how people perceive us. And Lord, we pray that you would also give us wisdom and give us skill at life and enable us to order our lives in a way that pleases you. We pray that you would do this as we expectantly hope that your spirit would write your word upon the tablets of our hearts in the name of Christ. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to, to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. And uh, I confess that as I started thinking about preaching this sermon or studying this text in order to preach this sermon, I was a little bit apprehensive because, you know, in this chapter, the Lord doesn't part the Red Sea and he's not, uh, he's not instituting the Passover. There, there aren't fireworks really in this chapter. It's, it's Moses' father-in-law comes out to interact with uh, Moses and the people of Israel. And, and so I, I was a little bit apprehensive, but then as I began to study the text... Um, I, be, I, I feel like uh, the Lord led me to the way that Moses has arranged the passage, and I began to, to sense that this passage could be more practical in terms of, of how we take its truths and apply it to our lives than, than possibly any other passage in the rest of the book of Exodus. So I, I'm really excited about what we're going to see here. Before we dive directly into Exodus chapter 18, uh, let me just kind of back out and set Exodus 18 in the wider context of the Bible. And really what I want to draw your attention to are the way that there are, there, there are patterns in this passage that we've seen earlier, particularly in the book of Genesis. So in this passage, you know, in chapter 17, um, they have a battle at the end of the chapter with Amalek. And now in chapter 18, they're going, Moses and the people of Israel are going to interact with and be influenced by this foreign priest, the priest of Midian, who is going to worship Yahweh, as we'll see. Um, many scholars will point to this passage as the definitive moment of Jethro's conversion. So we'll, we'll look at that in just a moment. So battle with Amalek, followed by uh, worship, led by a foreign priest who's been converted to the worship of Yahweh, the, the Lord. Well, that's what we see in Exodus, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 14, the passage uh, that Michael read earlier in the service. Abraham has engaged with a battle, in a battle, with a number of peoples. One of the peoples listed there are the Amalekites in Genesis 14. And then after defeating the Amalekites and rescuing Lot, Abraham interacts with a foreign priest. He's not an Israelite. Uh, Melchizedek, and, and Melchizedek from that passage is clearly worshiping the same God that Abraham worships. So battle with the Amalekites and then worship led by a foreign priest. In both of these cases, the victory is celebrated by the eating of bread together, which I think is anticipatory. Um, so th I think there's a parallel between 
uh, Genesis 14 and Exodus 17 and 18, I also think there's a, a father-in-law parallel. And I mentioned this when we were back in Genesis 31. Uh, there, in, in that passage, Moses describes Jacob fleeing from Laban. And you'll remember that he was over in like Aram in, in, in uh, 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 Paran Aram with his father-in-law Laban. And he, his, the way that Moses describes Jacob fleeing there and the way that Moses describes the report being brought to Laban and then Laban pursuing Jacob, it all sounds like uh, the way that Egypt, I'm sorry, Israel fled from Egypt and then the report was made to Pharaoh and then Pharaoh pursued after. And then um, in this case, in the same way that after the exodus from Egypt, Moses is going to interact with his father-in-law Jethro, on that occasion, Laban, Jacob's father-in-law, eventually catches up with with, um, Jacob and they have a negative interaction. And you may remember that I noted that Laban really missed an opportunity to participate in the blessing of Abraham because the Lord had promised if you, if, if, that he would bless those who bless Abraham and those who dishonor Abraham, he would curse. Uh, Jethro is going to participate in the blessing of Abraham, which is remarkably good news for every non-Israelite in the room. Just curious, any, anyone of Jewish descent in the room, any, any Israelites in the room? I don't see a single hand. Everybody, uh, one, one person of Jewish descent that I, that I see, one person of Jewish descent, everybody else is a non-Israelite who is participating in the blessing of Abraham because we're blessing uh, the God of Abraham. Uh, and, and that's what we'll see Jethro get to enter in on here in Exodus 18. This is so profoundly significant because at the end of Exodus 17, you look back at Exodus 17 Verse 16, it says, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You know, there are a number of passages that closely associate the Amalekites and the Midianites. Okay, so, so you could come to this next verse, Exodus 18.1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, informed by those places where the Amalekites and the Midianites are associated, and you could think... Maybe this isn't going to go so well. Maybe this Midianite, maybe this is going to be a negative interaction. And it doesn't turn out that way. It doesn't turn out that way because this Midianite is going to bless the God of Abraham. He's going to participate in the blessing of Abraham, which again is good news for all the nations. It's good news for everybody who's a non-Israelite. The God of the Bible is not a God who privileges the people of Israel, on the basis of racial descent. That is, not what, that is not the issue. It's not ethnic descent that is the issue. The issue is he's preserving the purity of their worship. That's what he's trying to preserve. And any, anybody from the nations, Midianites, Moabites, whatever, that wants to worship the God of Israel, they are welcomed in. So in Exodus 18... Uh, we will see this interaction between Moses and his father-in-law. And as I said, it, it's reminiscent of Genesis 14 and it's reminiscent of Genesis 31. And, and, and so what's the, what's the whole Bible significance of that? Well, in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 tells, this, tells us that Christ has triumphed over his enemies. Colossians 2, 15 says that the Lord Jesus disarmed the rulers 
and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, sorry, that's not the Lord Jesus, that's God the Father. God the Father triumphs over his enemies in Christ. So he wins the battle like Abraham and like the Israelites at the Exodus. God wins the battle through Christ. And then the passage that we saw in Hebrews basically tells us that after the battle, the people of God have a new priest, a priest who's not of the line of Aaron. You know, so uh, Melchizedek's not of the line of Aaron, Jethro's not of the line of Aaron, and the Lord Jesus is not of the line of Aaron. So I think there are these, these parallels, these patterns that culminate in Christ having to do with victory and then uh, the intercession of a non-Aaronic high priest. Uh, so let's look together at Exodus chapter 18. And um, I want to suggest that the first eight verses are bracketed by the phrase, all that God had done in verse 1, and then down in verse 8, you see Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. So that, I think that phrase, all that God had done, forms a kind of uh, bracket around these first eight verses. So let's look together at all the good that God had done for Israel. Exodus 18.1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, so what Moses is doing is reminding us of the story. You remember how back in Exodus chapter 2, after Moses tried to intervene between two Israelites, and, he, and, and they said, who made you ruler and judge over us? And the previous day, he had intervened between an, an Egyptian and an Israelite, and he had struck down the Egyptian and killed him. And, and, and so Moses flees from Egypt because the word gets out that he's killed this Egyptian. And he flees to Midian, and at a well, he meets the daughters of the priest of Midian, and and he, he, he waters their flock for them. And then their father says, why did you leave him? Why didn't you bring him home? And uh, he goes home with them and he marries. Uh, the, the priest of Midian gives him Zipporah, his daughter. And, and then in uh, chapter, after God's interaction with Moses at Mount Sinai, Moses had said, let me go back to Egypt and see about my people. And so that's the last time we saw Jethro. And look at, look at verse 1 again. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done, which tells us that God has accomplished his purpose in the Exodus, right? Because again and again, God had declared as he visited plagues or as he told Israel that he was going to do the plagues, I am going to make my name great among the nations. And, and so the word of what God has done to Egypt for Israel has reached Midian, and Jethro has heard. So Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. And this is really all the, all the insight we get into this. We're not told when this happened or why it happened. And so we're, we're just, in, in a way, we're just looking at earlier narratives and say, okay, when might this have happened? And, and I think, you know, it could have happened at any point, but given the way this plays out, probably after that strange episode back in Exodus 4, when uh, the angel of God uh, stood, met, met, the Lord met Moses on the way, and then Zipporah circumcises uh, her, her son, and, and um, 
after that event, probably uh, Moses, I, I, I think, maybe thought something like, well, perhaps it's too dangerous for me to take Zipporah and the children down into Egypt with me for this mission that the Lord has sent me on, so I'm going to send them home to uh, her father. And now they, they've come out of Egypt, and Jethro hears of that, that the, the mission has been successful, and so he's bringing Moses, his wife, and sons. So, verse 2, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. And then the name of the one was Gershom, and, and um, uh, this name is built out of these words that mean, thing, mean things like sojourner and, and place. So, Moses had said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, talking about his, his life in Egypt probably, and then also his life in Midian. And then verse 4, the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help. Okay, so Eli is my God, and then the Azar part is, is the help part. Now throughout this passage, in, in, this, in this first part, there's going to be an emphasis not only on all that God had done, like we saw in verse 1, but also on deliverance. So here in verse 4, um, the, the report is made, the God of, mother, God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Probably talk, Mo, Moses had likely named the child, it seemed, after he had escaped from Egypt when Pharaoh sought to kill him. Verse 5 Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And we haven't seen a reference to the mountain of God since all the way back in Exodus 3 where Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law and he came to the mountain of God and then God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. So they, they, they've arrived, it seems, at Mount Sinai, which is the mountain of God. And, and if you remember, back in Exodus 3, when the Lord called Moses out of the burning bush, he gave him the sign. He said, here's the proof, the sign, that I'm going to bring you out. When you have come out of Egypt, you will worship God at this mountain. And, and so uh, these, this, this reminder of the mountain of God is also reminding us of the promise that God made and assuring us that God keeps his promises. And just as a kind of uh, side note, uh, I think we can, we can in, a, in a kind of wide-angle fashion, think of the whole narrative of Exodus 3 through Exodus 19 as, as being bracketed by these references to, uh, to Sinai. You know? So Exodus 3 and 4 is Moses at Mount Sinai. Exodus 18 and 19, they've, they've now arrived at Mount, Mount Sinai. And, and in, the, in the intervening chapters... Exodus 5 through 11, what's happened there is God has achieved victory in Egypt over Pharaoh and his hosts. Exodus 12 and 13, the Passover was instituted. Exodus uh, 14 and 15, uh, the, the, they cross the Red Sea and then they celebrate the crossing of the Red Sea. Exodus 16 and 17, victory is achieved in the wilderness. So uh, you've got these two central sections about the Passover and the Red Sea which are obviously definitive moments in Israel's history. And then uh, bracketing that, victories in Egypt and in the wilderness, and then Moses at Sinai and then Israel at Sinai. So verse 5 again, 
Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. Now, I would invite you to to consider this this scene. Moses is not alone, right? We've read that that 600,000 men which could imply a couple of million people when you add in uh, that number of women and then the children that were probably born to those uh, unions. You've got a couple of million people encamped out here at uh, the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. And Moses, the leader of all these people, is now going out probably from their encampment to meet his father-in-law and his wife and their sons as they approach And imagine the whole host of Israel, probably at least the ones who can see from their vantage point, all those people, watching their leader go out and bow down to this priest of Midian. I think that would be kind of a surprising thing to see. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, verse 7, and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. So it seems that they enter probably not Uh, into the tent of meeting, that hasn't been constructed yet, into uh, the tent where Moses dwelt. And then verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. There's our our phrase that uh, creates a unit out of this, this text. All that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way. So we've kind of got a summary. All that God did to the Egyptians, that's Exodus 5 through 11, and you know, 13, 12 and 13, and 13, uh, 14 and 15, all that. And then all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, well, that's uh, the end of 15 through 17, and how the Lord had delivered them. So there's the deliverance again. Now, I just want to pause here and note what Jethro had heard. Jethro had not heard about the, the people of Israel's moments of faithlessness in Egypt. Jethro had not heard about the people of Israel's grumbling that we've just seen in chapters 15, 16, and 17, right? Three, three episodes, water, bread, water, all three episodes tied together by that word grumbling of the people in the wilderness. That's not what Jethro had heard about. What Jethro had heard about was what the Lord had done for his people. And, and I think this is a good moment for us, for all of us, to pause and reflect on our lives and reflect on the messaging that comes out of our lives. And and I'm not just talking about what you post on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or whatever. I'm not just talking about um, what you write down in your journal or what you um, say to the members of your family. I'm talking about all the messaging everything, how you, how you think about what has gone on in the last 24 hours, and then how you report on that when people ask you how you're doing. And, and I just want to challenge all of us. Let's be people that, that others are clear. Look at all that God has done for them. Look at all that God has done for them. That's what draws this foreign priest to Moses. Look back at verse 1. 
Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had... It's the good news. This is the, this is the Old Testament version of the gospel. God acting for the salvation of his people. And, and my hope and prayer for every member of this congregation is that we would be the kind of people that foreigners, unbelievers, are drawn to because what they hear is all the good that God has done for us in Christ. That, that's what we want to be messaging. Make sure that people hear the good that God has done. Now, in this next unit, in, in verses 9 through 18, I think that this unit is bracketed by this phrase in verse 9, all the good that Yahweh had done. And then down in, in verses 17 and 18, we're going to see it again. Only this time, in verse 17, Jethro is going to say to Moses, what you are doing is not good. And then he's going to speak again at the end of verse 18, you are not able to do it alone. So the, the doing of good and not good brackets, I think, this next unit. So we got good and not, not good here. Um, the first part of this, verses 9 through 12, we're going to see Israel delivered to eat bread, to celebrate the feast, so to speak. And then in the second unit, verses 13 through 18, we're going to see an, an administrative failure. So let's look together at verses 9 through 12. Verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. We want to we be messaging in such a way that people perceive this as good news. If, if we're messaging about all the good that God has done for us in Christ, and people, I mean, I, you know, I, I understand. Sometimes people are rebellious. They don't want to hear about God. And, and sometimes, so sometimes the problem is them. But if, if there's no rejoicing in response to what God has done for us, we're doing something wrong. We're com we want to communicate it in such a way that people perceive this is really good. We were slaves. This is who we want to be. We were slaves to sin, and God saved us. Like Israel, we were slaves to Pharaoh, and God, God delivered us. God brought us out. So Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them, verse 8, how the Lord had delivered them, verse 9, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. And, and notice that Lord there is small caps. You've got that small cap R, small cap D, capital letter, same size as the small. That's Yahweh. Jethro is using the covenant name, blessed be Yahweh, this foreign priest of Midian who's a non-Israelite. He could be an enemy of the people of Israel, and he's blessing Yahweh because of what the Lord has done for them. Blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. He, he gets it. You were slaves, and slaves don't get loose from the Egyptians. And, and Yahweh delivered you, and he's blessing the Lord in response to this. And then look, look at what he says in verse 11. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Now I 
No. So here again, the Lord has achieved his purpose in the Exodus. Again and again, he said, you will know that I am Yahweh. And now the priest of Midian is saying, now I know. I suspect that there were probably many nights around the campfire or in the tent when Moses had tried to appeal to his father-in-law. Yahweh really is the God who made the heavens and the earth. Yahweh really is the only God who saves. And I suspect that over those many years, I mean, we're told that, that in, in the book of Acts that Moses shepherded the flock of his father for 40 years. I suspect that over those 40 years, the priest of Midian would nod his head and then he would go about doing his business, worshiping his false gods. And now he's saying, having seen the Exodus, now I know. And this is what we pray that our lost friends and relatives would pray. Maybe even those that we've been sharing the gospel with for, for years, perhaps for decades. We want them to finally see what God has done at the cross, the fulfillment of the exodus from Egypt, and respond like Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And then verse 12, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. It's Jethro doing this, not Aaron. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is a remarkable passage. It, it's a passage that a scholar, Dwayne Garrett, my colleague at Southern Seminary, in his co commentary on the book of Exodus, he, he points to this, this verse and he says, this indicates that the Aaronic priesthood is not the final priesthood. This indicates that there's, there's an opening for a non-Aaronic priesthood to lead in the worship of God in response to the victory of God. And I would say, yeah, that's just like Melchizedek after uh, the, the battle with Amalek in Genesis 14. And it anticipates what the author of Hebrews says. When, did you notice how he said in Hebrews 7... It's obvious that our Lord was descended from Judah, and nothing is ever said about a priesthood from that line. So Jesus is a non-Aaronic priesthood, and he's talking about how when there's a change in the law, there's a change in the priesthood. So we don't have priests from the line of Aaron. We've got one great high priest, the Lord Jesus. And as the author of Hebrews says, he holds his priesthood permanently by the power of his indestructible life. That's who's interceding for us. That is glorious. And it's anticipated, I think, by Jethro here. And, and similarly, I would say, I think that the bread that was eaten by Melchizedek with Abraham and the bread that's eaten by Jethro and Moses and Aaron here anticipates the bread that we're going to eat in celebration of the Lord's victory at the cross at the end of this service. So they're delivered to eat bread in verses 9 through 12 in celebration of what, all the good that God has done for Israel. Now, now this, this just saved person, this new convert, is now going to look at what's going on in Israel, and he's going to say this is not good. And here's, what, here's where I think the really practical part of this sermon comes in. Now, you know, don't get me wrong. I hope that all this stuff about messaging, about the gospel, about being, people being I hope you'll pray that people that you know that you've been in conversation with will come to that point where they say, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. But I hope you'll also apply what we're about to see in this passage to your life. 
So verse 13. Um, the next day Moses sat to judge. And there's a switch that happens in like the repeated word. To this point, the repeated word in the passage has been delivered. We've seen it over and over again. From this point to the end of the chapter, the word that's going to be repeated over and over again is this word to judge, which is sometimes rendered decide. So that's now going to be our key word. Verse 13, the next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Can you imagine? A couple of million people, and they're all bringing their cases to Moses. He is never going to get through all the work. He is never going to be able to address everybody's problem. Verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing. That's the same phrase. It's worded exactly the same as the phrase, all that the Lord was doing. And I think that Moses is subtly communicating. It's like Moses is, is trying to imitate God. You know, in, in the first... The first, thir- the first 12 verses of the chapter, th- this all that he was doing refers to all that God does. But now it's used with reference to Moses, and it's as though Moses is trying to play God for the people of Israel and be the one who adjudicates all their problems. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing? That's kind of a variation on the same phrase. For the people. Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? This takes all day, Moses. Verse 15, Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. I'm the prophet. I'm the one who has access to the Lord. So if they want God's word, God's will on a matter, they have to come to me. Verse 16, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide, that's a variation of that word judge, I judge, between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Okay, so that is not the part that's not good. Um, The part that's not good is that Moses is trying to do all this by himself. So verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. Not the part about Moses revealing God's law. We'll see that reinforced down in verse 20 where Jethro is going to say, you will reveal to them God's law. The part that's not good is that Moses is the only person doing this. What you are doing is not good, verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Okay, so... um, I think that what Jethro is basically saying here to Moses is, don't let your salvation be spoiled by bad administration. You're going to wear yourself in, out in the wilderness. And, and so th- this, is, this is my point of application for all of us from this passage. God has done good things for us. Don't respond by trying to play God. It is not your job to do everything. It is not your job to do everything that God does. It's not my job to do everything that God does. We have to recognize, Moses needs to recognize, we need to recognize that there are lots of problems that you don't need to address. That's what Moses needed to, address, to, to recognize. There are lots of problems that don't require your attention. You don't have to do everything. And so now in verses 19 through 23, um, Jethro, the priest of Midian, is going to give Moses advice 
And I think that Jethro's advice, it definitely applies to Moses' situation. I think it also applies in our homes. Fathers, I think this, this advice applies to us. Uh, wives, mothers, I think this applies to us. Uh, you, kids, this applies to you. I think it applies in our workplaces. Whether you're the guy at the top of the food chain or the bottom of the food chain, I think this applies. I think this applies in local, state, and national government, what we're about to see. And I'm going to give you a term for what we are about to see that I think captures it. It's, it's, a, it's the term subsidiarity. That's a big word. Maybe you want to write that down, look it up. You don't have to if you don't want to. It's a big word that just means problems should be handled at the lowest possible level. In other words, you know, if you've got 10 Israelites with a dispute and they're the only people that this concerns, they need to settle it. They don't need to take it to Moses at the top of the food chain. If you've got 100 Israelites with a dispute, let them settle it. They don't need to take that to Moses. Okay, so you, you, you settle disputes at the lowest possible level so that you avoid this massive administrative overload that Mo Moses is dealing with. So look at verse 19. Jethro says to Moses, Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Okay, so this is what we're about to see beginning in Exodus 20 and continuing in the first deposit through Exodus 23 where Moses is going to give the people the law. And I would say <clears throat> this is what the people at the top of the food chain need to do. Whether we're talking about the boss at work or the dad at home, or <clears throat> whatever local official we might deal, be dealing with, whether we're talking about the president, or the governor, or the mayor, whatever, you set out the policies, okay? <clears throat> Verse 21, moreover, look for able men, the Hebrew says, men of valor. And what are we looking for when we look for men of valor? Able men from all the people, men who fear God who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So it works all the way down to the granular level of just ten people. So it's going to be a lot of guys that they're looking for, and they're not looking for people that are going to privilege the claims of, let's say, those who are minorities of some kind. They're, no, they're looking for justice. They're looking, for, they're looking for the fear of God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe. They're, they're not looking for people that privilege the wealthy because the wealthy can pay them off. They're not looking for people that can privilege something that they want to advance. They're looking for people that are going to privilege justice, fairness, equality before the law. That's what they're looking for. And then verse 22, let them judge. Okay, so you put people over uh, thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. Verse 22, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. So I think that wise uh, people at work will recognize there are jobs that I need to do, there are jobs that I don't need to do, that people under me need to do. And then you need to unclutter your life by 
laying out what the principles and what the framework is, and then you need to set those people free to make decisions and do their job, bringing more difficult things to you. The same thing applies to fathers and husbands. If, if you've got a job and, and you're gainfully employed and you're providing for your family, it is not possible for you to arbitrate every possible discipline case that arises among your children. You need to institute policies where the kids settle certain things among themselves, certain things get brought to their mother, and certain things rise to the level of, uh, you, we're going to deal with this when your father comes home from work. And, 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 and then we need to lighten the load for one another. Verse 22, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And then verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you. This is, this is wisdom that winds up in the Bible out of the mouth of a newly converted priest from Midian. It's, it's amazing. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. In verses 24 through 27, Moses does it, which shows us that Moses was humble and listened to wisdom. You know, if there's anybody in the world in position to respond to his father-in-law along these lines, you don't have any business telling me what to do. I get direct revelation from God. What are you doing trying to tell me what to do? I will do this the way I see fit. Right, right, but you're not exactly, you know, getting through all the cases. It would be foolish for Moses to respond that way, wouldn't it? That would be proud. That would be the opposite of humility. That would be a failure of leadership. Look at how humble Moses is. Moses is a man who, who raises his staff and the waters of the Red Sea part. Moses is a man who has just struck the rock and water has come gushing out. I mean, while his arms were up in the air, Israel was defeating the Midianites. If Moses can listen to wisdom, you can listen to wisdom. Verse 20, 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. Verse 25, Moses chose able men, men of valor. You know, <clears throat> it's valorous to say, I'm going to uphold the truth. It's valorous to say, I'm going to hate a bribe. It's valorous to say, I'm going to fear God. The Proverbs say uh, that those who side with the wicked hate the law, but those who oppose iniquity stand for it. That's what these men of valor are doing, these, these able men. They're standing for the truth. Verse 25, Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people. And it's exactly what Jethro told him to do. Chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They work it down to the lowest level of just ten people. And those people are supposed to settle their dispute with the one guy over them. If it needs to rise up, it goes to the next level of 50. If it needs to go above that, it goes to the hundreds and then the thousands. And then there's going to be some cases that work their way up to Moses. Verse 26, they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter, they judged, they decided for themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. At the beginning of the chapter, Jethro comes because he's heard what the Lord has done. And then he, he makes his contribution, 
and he goes home. What's, what's beautiful about this passage is that the Bible gives us what we need to be saved. The Bible tells us the story about, in, in the case of Israel, how God delivered them from Egypt and instituted the, the, this, this um, monogamous worship of Yahweh. We worship Yahweh alone. And the Bible tells the story about how Christ has come to accomplish our salvation. And we're saved by turning away from our sins and trusting in Christ alone by grace for salvation. If, you, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a believer, we would love to talk with you further about that after the service. The Bible also speaks to believers. The Bible also gives us this practical wisdom that enables us to live lives that are pleasing to God by, in, in part, showing us you know, there, there are problems that you don't need to address. There are problems that you need to delegate. There, there are matters that you need to let people under you handle. And that applies to every one of us in various ways. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that rejoice as we hear the news of what you've done. And we, we know, Lord, that this is the work of your spirit. It's a supernatural, miraculous work that, that lifts a veil off our face and opens blinded eyes and, and gives life to dead hearts so that when we hear the glory of what you have done, it's the most exciting thing to us in the world because we know that you've accomplished salvation. You've You've achieved salvation to the uttermost for those who draw near through Christ. Lord, we pray that you give us hearts that respond that way. And we pray that you'd make us wise, too. We pray that our salvation would not be spoiled by bad administration. We pray that you would make us humble and willing to listen to wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to recognize how you've gifted us and how you've gifted others and keep us from proudly thinking that we need to play God and do everything. Lord, we pray that through all this, you would be glorified as, as people see our lives and, and see your glory on display. We ask that you would draw people, Lord, who want to hear more, people who might respond with the words, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. We pray that this would happen over and over again in our lives, that many people would be saved, that the church would be built, and that through your goodness and kindness to us, things in our culture would change because so many people have come to know you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.